If you would, please take your seats and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Now, I guess we have a new tradition, custom, that when the scriptures are read at the beginning, do I have a little echo here? Am I? Okay. Um, That we're all going to stand. Stand if you can. People like me can't, so I understand that. Stand if you can, please. And um, consider Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Donna? Verses 9 through 26. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Donna. Well, today we're dropping down without any buildup or warning into the book of Romans. Why, you ask? Well, we're in between a preaching series. We just finished Ezra and Nehemiah, and we are about next week to begin a new preaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And um, <clears throat> so the elders told me that if I preach today, I can preach on anything I want. <laughs> so I went through my list. I thought, well, I could preach on baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> I could do head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11. I could do the eschatological implications of Daniel's 70th week. And in the end, I decided I want to be right here in Romans chapter 3. And if I had begun to preach on one of those, a large hook at the end of a staff would have come out. (laughs) I can rest assured they are all about protecting the flock. Well, I picked this text that you just heard um, for a particular reason. When you get to be my age and particularly my condition, you realize you don't have that many sermons left in you. And um, so when you get the chance, you, like me, would want to talk about the most important things. And um, that's why I picked this text. 
commentator and theologian Leon Morris calls this text, paragraph from verses 21 to 26, he says, it's possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. The most important single paragraph ever written. We all ought to know what's in this paragraph. This paragraph unlocks uh, uh, the mysteries of God that were hidden from ages and generations past. This text, this paragraph in 1 Corinthians, uh, in Romans 3, 21, 26, is going to speak to us about what exactly happened on the cross and the story behind that. And um, <laughs> this paragraph changed me in 1982. And I began and I had a much deeper understanding of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And I trust, trust that it will change you as well. For those of you who already know this well, then you'll be encouraged uh, and built up even uh, again. For those of you who don't, I pray that this will change you and you will see the cross of Christ in uh, a different light. The text we are given, uh, we're going to be considering today, answers a universal and fundamental question. How can a single person, I'm sorry, how can a sinful person, single or married, how can a, how can a sinful person ever be forgiven and accepted by a holy God? How can a sinful person ever be forgiven and accepted by a holy God? Or more succinctly, how can I possibly be righteous? Now, there are many current approaches to answering that question. Uh, how can a sinful person ever be forgiven and accepted by a holy God? Some would say, well, there is no God, so don't worry about it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, that would be convenient if it were true, but it's not. And Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is a God, and to whom is he to whom we will all give an account someday. Don't be fooled into thinking anything less. Some would say, it's all right, there is a God, but he won't judge you. He will send everyone to heaven. Um, when I was a child, there was a, a very trendy pop song, and none of you remember my childhood except a couple maybe of what that could possibly be like, but I think the McGuire sisters had a hit in the, in the mid-50s, and later on, the, the song was called He. It was just called He, and we'll get to the lyrics in a minute, but it's about, it's really about God, although God's name is never mentioned, Jesus is never mentioned, it's just kind of a generic God. And, um, and it was recorded by Andy Williams and the, the Righteous Brothers and Elvis, Diana Ross and the Supremes, and my favorite, Tammy Wynette. Now, I was going to be playing the Tammy, Tammy Wynette version as you came in through the doors <laughs> to get today, and I, I floated that by uh, Daniel. Uh, he didn't say no, he just looked at me strangely. <laughs> Nonverbal communication. But let me, let me uh, quote to you, and let me perhaps have a, on the overhead, the last verse of this, and all the verses are kind of like this. He can touch a tree and turn the leaves to gold. He knows every lie that you and I have told. Though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he'll always say, I will forgive. Though it makes him sad, to see the way we live, he'll always say, I will, or I, I forgive. Now, of course, again, there's no mention of who this God is. There's no mention of the cross of Calvary. There's no, it's a sort of a generic God who's, who's kind of a sad character, isn't he? He's just sad because of all of our sin, and apparently he can do nothing about it. And if he could just get a few people to come over to his side, how much better he would feel. If some people would just join him, but he can't do much about it. He's, he's up there looking down, and all he can do is forgive. Well, uh, of course, uh, 
and, and when he says I forgive, there's no basis on which he forgives. What is the basis uh, by which he could forgive someone? Now, the God of the Bible has a very definite basis, and he wants very much that we understand the grounds in order that we may lay hold of that forgiveness and that righteousness. Also, the God of the Bible doesn't always say, I forgive. He damns people to hell. You say, isn't that just the Old Testament God? I don't like that God. I'm kind of a New Testament God kind of person. Well, the God in the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus had more to say about hell than any other writer in the Bible. So don't think there's a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament with respect to the issue of of forgiveness versus condemnation or damnation. And and Jesus, um, Jesus, as he spoke about those things, of course, he is also preaching the gospel. But the question remains to us today, how can God just say, I forgive? So we'll see that Romans 3, 21 to 26 answers that question, explains it, how it can be. And so we're not going to hurry through it, the text. We're going to marinate in it a bit. And we will see that we are, as some of you might already know, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So as we unpack this, before we do, let's ask for God's, to be, God to be with us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, As we consider your great salvation this morning, I pray that you would speak loudly to our hearts concerning your good news in Christ Jesus. We who are prone to distractions, worldly concerns, or superstitious beliefs need your Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us, to enlighten the eyes of our understanding even cause some here to be born again to a new and living hope. Oh, Lord, how glorious is your gospel. How wonderful is your plan. May we agree with the psalmist in Psalm 111 who says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Lord, as we study your great work of salvation, we study it because we delight in it. And so... um, We ask that you would reveal yourself to us in Scripture, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our great high priest, amen. Amen. Well, having been inspired by by, uh, Pastor John McLeod, uh, today I have six points. (laughs) So uh, we'll work quickly through some of them. First, the the need for God's righteousness. Second, the means of God's righteousness. Third, the form of God's righteousness. Uh, uh, Fourth, the the source of God's righteousness. Five, the basis of God's righteousness. And finally, the purpose of God's righteousness. The purpose of God's righteousness. Let's begin with the need for righteousness, which is summary, it said, um, the need for righteousness is because of the depravity of, of man, and we already heard uh, Donna. She read to us from, particularly verses Romans nine through verse twenty. And before we get into the text proper, let's examine the verses leading up to it, which will amount to a summation of the first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans. After Paul's, Paul's after Paul's formal in, uh, introduction to the Roman church, which by which uh, which by the way he had never personally. Uh, been to. Uh, Rome is, un- is unusual in that way, since most of his epistles were to churches that he had personally established and with whom he'd had a previous relationship. He certainly knew people there, but he hadn't been there yet. And that's why the length of the book of Romans is because he's outlining his gospel as he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, <clears throat> he longs to visit with them and to communicate and he communicates that early in the letter. After this brief introduction, he launches into the theme that will dominate the entire epistle. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
and how one can obtain the personal righteousness that every person needs in light of the justice, holiness, and judgment of God. So flip over a few pages and look at chapter 1. In verses 16 and 17, he gives us the theme of the book of Romans. Find it, verses 16 and 17, chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This righteousness, then, if not attained, obtained, received, will result in the wrath of God upon every worker of unrighteousness. So look at two verses later, verse 18. For the wrath of God is that is presently and will futurely be is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God's wrath is upon us if we are unrighteous. You may be tasting a little of it now, but you will taste a lot on that day. And Paul here is not talking about the parental discipline of God to his people, but rather the unspeakable ferocious punishment by this all-powerful righteous judge of all the earth. And do not misunderstand here, there is no middle ground. One is either a righteous person or an unrighteous person. And every unrighteous person will ultimately face judgment on that day of judgment. And Paul goes on in the next two chapters in Romans, making his case like a thundering prosecutor with a hardened criminal repeat, repeat criminal before the judge. And he brings, uh, in chapter 1, he prosecutes the average run-of-the-mill atheist, pagan, uh, God-ignorer, uh, agnostic. In chapter 2, he takes on the average run-of-the-mill good person. They don't fare any differently, believe me. A person, and he judges them with the secrets of their own hearts as evidence. <clears throat> they judge people, but they don't live up to their own standards, let alone God's. They're a nice and polite Hardness uh, toward God will not help them. Um, look at verses in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury not just a simple wrath, it's a ferocious wrath. Now, and then lastly, Paul puts the Jews, as it were, on trial. Because they were God's chosen people, and they had the scriptures that gave them tremendous advantage over any other person uh, in any other nation at any other time in history. And so the question was, do they, do they get, as God's chosen people, do they get judged by the same standard as the Gentiles, or do they get special treatment? The answer is they don't get special treatment. So look at verse 10 in chapter 3, what we've already heard. What then? Are the Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, all, the charge has come. He's in court. There's an accusation being made. A charge has been brought forth. He's been a charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. So, the charges have been brought, the accusations have been made, and they stick. And Paul quotes the Old Testament here uh, in the following verses just to make sure that the Jewish readers in Rome clearly understand that the charges are, uh, are for all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike. And there's only two categories of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. So if you're Jewish and you're, you're Jewish, you're in that you're in that camp. If you're not, like me, probably a Gentile, and all my ancestors, as far as I know, were Gentiles. Well, that's the most of the people in the world. And but he says all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, are under sin. 
they are guilty. And he sums it up with, none is righteous. Look at verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. So having established that, everybody here is on level ground. You know, maybe, maybe you think, I'm a really hardened sinner. Well, you might be down in a mine shaft somewhere, and maybe you're here and you're a young person and you obey your parents and do all. Maybe you're up on the Alps, but neither one of you can touch the stars. That's how far away you are from being accepted by God and being, um, and being forgiven of your sin. Now, in verses 11 to 18, Paul finishes his description of fallen mankind using these various verses from the Old Testament. He starts with the set of their heart. What are their hearts like? Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. And in 12, no one does good, not even one. No one does good. Talking about here, if you're apart from Christ, even when they do what might be considered good, it's for the wrong reasons. It's not in faith, and it's not to glorify God in Christ Jesus. That makes their good works worth nothing in God's sight. So, that is the selfishness and sinfulness of man. John Stott says this, Sin is the revolt of the self against God. The dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. Ultimately, it is self-deification the reckless determination to occupy the throne which belong, belongs to God alone. It is, it is the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. We don't like God telling us what to do, so we become our own gods. In verses 13 and 14, he covers their speech. He kind of starts low and comes out to the lips. He goes, their throat is an open grave, meaning there's death there. They use their tongues. He moves up to deceive, and the venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. These are descriptive words that really fit all of us at one level or another. And finally, he addresses the, those that, that commit violence and bloodshed. Their feet Verse 15, are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then he finishes with his final and, and, and uh, uh, summation, if you will, of this list. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God. Now, fear of God is something we must have. We must cultivate. And there's right kinds of fear, there's wrong kind of fear, but this is an aside. Um, parents, fear God. Teach your children to fear God. Teach your grandchildren to fear God. God is not to be trifled with. God is to be worshipped. Hmm. And again, for clarity's sake, he repeats uh, in... <clears throat> Verses 20 and 23, what he's already said. Uh, look at verse 24. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And now we're in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. And in verse 19, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Again, here it is. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world be held accountable to God. That is the end of the matter. That is the verdict that he has labored for two and a half chapters to bring to conclusion, and the verdict is guilty as charged on all counts. Every mouth is closed, and no one has an answer. The whole world is accountable to God. And on the basis of good works or good attitudes or trying hard or another religion, no human being will be accounted as righteous. 
Now, with that little introduction, cheery little one that is, brings us to this most valuable uh, paragraph that explains how it is that sinful people can be counted as righteous before a just and holy God. But the question that arises is the same one that, that we, we started with and that Job asked in chapter 9 of Job. Job chapter 9, verse 2, the second part of chapter 2 says, But how can a man be right or have right standing before God? That is the question. How can we have right standing before God? Now let's move to the second point, which is the means of God's righteousness, and that is faith. Faith, faith. So in verses 21 to 23, we get verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. <clears throat> Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So he begins with, but now, but now, he's given us this litany of, of, of accusations and charges of which we're guilty, and we end up, you know, we're sinking lower in our seats as we consider this, and then he says, but now. Now, when you see a but now by Paul, uh, it's a good news thing, right? Good news is coming. It's like Ephesians chapter 2, you're dead in your sins and trespasses, but now you've been quickened. It's in Romans uh, 6, 21, 2, somewhere in there. It, it says, you were slaves of sin, but now you're slaves of righteousness. The but now by Paul is significant. Well, when I say but now, you say hallelujah. But now. Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> Amen. But now. Yes. It says the righteousness of God has been manifested. How could a person could be, be righteous has now been manifested. That which was a kind of vague or secret in some ways in the past, although not completely, because the law and the prophets bore witness of it. It's there in Moses. It's there in the prophets. And yet it was veiled in some sense. And so now it's been made clear that this way of righteousness, to be righteousness, has been manifested. And it's apart from the law. Now that means righteousness is not based on your actions or your performance. It is not by achieving. It is apart from the law. It's not based on you keeping the Ten Commandments. You can't keep them anyway. How old were you when you told your first lie? Don't tell me. You're probably lying now. Okay. <laughs> we sin. The, the wicked come forth from birth, uh, the psalmist says. Paul says, I was conceived in iniquity uh, and sin and brought forth in iniquity. It is a part of our fallen nature. We don't, you don't have to teach children to sin. You never had to teach a, children, a child to be selfish. They come that way. And as parents, it's your job to try to get it out of them. That'll take you about 20 years, and then I'll be praying for you. Okay. <laughs> so it's not based on achieving. Not based on any of these, these things. And sit, but, but how is he? He says, how is it achieved? Apart from the law, <clears throat> the righteousness of God through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. It is through, through faith for all who believe. The way to righteousness has been found. It is by faith. Faith by believing in Jesus Christ. When we talk about faith, I mean that you believe who Jesus is as the Bible preaches him. We believe that. We don't just believe it, uh, that it's, that's, it's, it's written here. It says that. We accept that and trust that it's true. And lastly, we entrust ourselves to him. We believe in him, we trust him, and we, trust, we entrust ourselves to him. We are all in for Jesus, for righteousness' sake, 
We've made no other provision, or there is no other provision. We crawled out on the limb and sawed it off. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Martin Luther said, faith is a lively, reckless confidence in God. A lively, reckless confidence in God. And to who is this? What's the extent of this righteousness? Verse 21, for all who believe. That means the door is open wide. Don't try to work yourself to being accepted by God. Believe your way there. Have faith. It's for everyone. Verse 22, for all who believe. It's a continuing process. We keep on believing. We keep on believing. Everyone needs it because we've all sinned and fall short. And that, that also is a continuing process. Not like I used to sin and fall short, but now I don't. The truth is, I'm always falling short of the glory of God. And so I always need to be believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Because I'm always falling short. And, and, and we'll get to the content of that belief a little later. But to, suffice to say, it is for all who believe without distinction, Jew or Gentile. And that in itself is an amazing uh, revelation. We Gentile Americans take it for granted that, you know, the promises for us or whatever, that we read the Bible, uh, that was... Listen, the idea that Gentiles like us, like me could be saved. No, the Jews in the Old Testament didn't believe that, with a few exceptions. You have Rahab, you have Ruth, you have Naaman, uh, uh, Nahum. You have a few Gentiles. But other than that, they were all lost. Remember what Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, by the, uh, in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what everybody was like until the gospel was spread to the nations. And, to, and with Christ, it was always intended that would be the fulfillment. Through Abraham, I'll bless I'll bless the nations. But that now, when does that come to take place? It begins to get, take place at the cross of Christ. And we see the gospel going forth to Gentiles for the first time. <clears throat> and, um, and so, don't take it for granted. Now, now, point three, the form of God's righteousness. The form of God's righteousness is justification. Justification. Look at verse 24, first part and are justified by his grace as a gift. To be, it's justified. What's it mean to be justified? It means the cancellation of guilt. It's a legal term. It's forensic. It is the relationship of conformity to the law. To be justified is to be found faultless when examined by the moral law of God. To have right, it is to have right standing with God himself. To be justified. To be justified means that you've been declared not guilty. It's, and it is, it is declarative. It is pronouncing the person not guilty or pronouncing the person righteous. Uh, sometimes with the, with the connotation of vindicating them. Someone who had been found guilty now has been proven that his trial was messed up and he was really guilty. So a court will make a declaration of that innocence. That even though he and he'd be somewhat restored to his former legal position. So it is, it is declarative. And we see it in the Old Testament as well. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25:1, it says, If there be a controversy between men and they come into judgment, <clears throat> that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Justify as declare them to be righteous and to condemn. Those who are um, wicked. So justification is a declaration of your righteousness. The opposite of justification is condemnation. To fall into the condemnation of God. So justification is, is it's, it's a legal term. It's declarative. 
It's also eschatological. It's God's verdict on judgment day given now. God's judgment, God's verdict on judgment day given now to you. You are proclaimed not guilty on judgment day now. You don't have to wait to judgment day to know that you are righteous. You will be declared righteous on that day now. You can experience that. And that has to do with assurance and many things. And that was, a, for Martin Luther, these are incredibly important concepts. And uh, I don't have time to, to quote him much there. But he has uh, several really great things to say. But there is a day coming, folks. There's a day coming. Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, I tell you, the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. That day is coming. Similarly, Paul writes in Romans 2, verses 13 and 16, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified on that day, according to my gospel, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. There will be a day. So, if you think you're justified because of your good works, uh, you'll be in trouble on that day. On that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And the question is, are you in Christ Jesus? <clears throat> is, he, is he your Lord? Do you have faith in him? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Now, one of the most common <clears throat> uh, descriptions of justification is to be justified is just as if I'd never sinned at all. Justified means just as if I'd never sinned at all. But that falls a little short, doesn't it? Justification, biblical justification is actually better than that. <clears throat> if, if I, when I came to Christ in May of 1973 and I was justified, about five minutes later, and I was declared innocent. Everything was wiped clean. The slate was wiped clean. My problem is, how long will it take me to mess that slate up? You know, uh, maybe I'll get through five minutes. Maybe not. Uh, how long will it take to... So, so it's not just that, <clears throat> that you are... Uh, it's not just as if I'd never sinned at all. It is... Uh, it is, it is justification that Christ brings covers all of our sins, including the ones we are yet to commit. That's why he says in Romans chapter 5, 1, having been justified by faith, we presently have peace with God. We can have peace with God because we have been justified. Justification is a settled matter. It's not a, you're not continuously being re-justified over and over again. You have been justified and declared not guilty on the day of judgment. Once and for all, you have, we, have, we have been justified by faith. And justification, by the way, has always been God's method of saving people. The whole next chapter of Romans chapter 4 is about Abraham. You know, if you look at verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So it's always been God's means is through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as right. He goes on to talk about David being in that. You turn to, to Hebrews 11, you have all these people who died in faith. They died in faith. That's how they got their name in the Bible, not because they were perfect, perfect people. We'll find out about that in a little bit. Um, and those, all, that, all that talk, by the way, look at chapter 4 and verse, verse, uh, 20, um, verse 23. But the words, it was counted for him, were not written for his sake alone. It was counted to him as, counted him as righteousness. Were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who, delivered up, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So that was written for us as well. We have... Justified is the same act that God uh, uh, justified and accepted Abraham by faith. Now, what's the source of this righteousness, this justi justification? That's the fourth point. The source is grace. Right, so the second part of, of, of uh, verse 24, 
and are justified by his grace as a gift. It's, it's, it, to us, it's not earned. You don't earn justification. It's a gift. It's, it's by grace. Um, it's, it's free. It's the free gift. Please understand that it was, it was earned by someone at a very great cost. So we say it's, it was unearned. It was earned by Jesus who died, who bled to death on a cross, suffered unbelievable torment under the punishment of God from the Garden of Gethsemane forward till his death. He paid a great price that we might, that it might come to us free of charge at no cost. It's yours. Believe fully. It is without cause in us. God didn't look into your heart and find anything that would cause God to justify you. He didn't say, oh, look at that. Isn't she a sweet little thing? I should justify someone like that. God didn't look that way. If he did, he said, well, what Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And so our hearts, I remember having a conversation with a guy. Uh, I was telling him something I had done uh, that I was wish I'd done it differently, and I don't think I really helped the person I was talking to. And he said, well, he says, God knows your heart. And I said, yeah, that's my problem. <laughs> that's exactly my problem. You're not helping me when you say, God knows my heart. My heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's not the, it's not, the enemy's not out there somewhere. The enemy's in here. That great prophet Walt Kelly in his comic strip Pogo says it this way. Do we have that? We have met the enemy, and he is us. We are our own enemy. We are the ones that uh, have gotten us in the place we're in. So it's a gift. Uh, it's not earned. It's without cause. It's without cost. There's nothing you could do to earn it. You couldn't say enough Hail Marys or Our Fathers or whatever it is you used to do to merit justification. It's by grace and grace alone. Sola gratia. Sola fide by faith alone. Sola gratia by, by grace alone. And uh, God can give grace to whoever he wants. Remember that parable in Matthew where the vineyard workers came in and some worked all day and some worked, you know, four hours and some worked, one just worked an hour. He gave them all the same. And they, the guys that worked all day said, hey, that doesn't seem fair. He said, I, I paid you what I said I would, right? And he says, is it not my right to do what I will with what is my own. God gives grace to sinners. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes. I'm loving that person. Point five, the basis of God's righteousness is the death of Christ. The end of 24 and the beginning of 25 Look in your Bibles at 24 and 25. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the basis of justification and righteousness is in Christ alone. Solo Christo. Christ alone. It's not Christ plus anything else. It's not Christ plus your good works. It is... The, it's, it's Christ plus nothing else. He is the one who, uh, who redeems us. Redemption. God, he, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Redemption implies a ransom. A price of emancipation. Um, God came, Jesus came to redeem us. And he was a ransom. Mark 10.45 says this. Even For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom to set you free from the bondage of sin, from the curse of sin, from, you know, you fill in the blank. 
If I had time, I'd say, what did, what did Jesus set you free from? Um, make your own list at home. Share it in your home group, whatever. Um, in Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That is, our trespasses were held by, their, by the guilt of those trespasses, but through him, we, through his blood, we have redemption. We're set free from that sin. And then finally in 1 Timothy 2, he says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He was our ransom. He paid the price that redeemed us. Redeemed us from sin. Redeemed us from the curse. Redeemed us from a lot of things. Practical things. But the big ones are those. He redeemed us from the judgment of God. And so when we look at this, um, consider Christ's redemption uh, through his ransoming. Um, now, and again, it is, he, he, redemption implies liberation. Uh, and Colossians 1 says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. That's what happened at the cross. At the cross. In Romans, or in Revelation chapter 1, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He freed us from our sins. It says now in verse 25, Look at verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation by his blood. What exactly is the significance of the Son of God dying on the cross? Well, Jesus being, Jesus Christ being fully human and fully God died. Now we understand that Christ in his human nature died. God the eternal Son did not die, for it's impossible for him to die. The divine nature could not be, was not subject to death. But Jesus, the Messiah, the mediator, he died. Hebrews tells us Jesus, the incarnate God, is our high priest. Therefore, he says in Hebrews 2, he was made to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he is our high priest. He is like us, yet without sin. And he became our sin offering, our sin offering. <clears throat> now, for the, sound, for the overhead, I'm going to skip a quote. So what does it mean that he made propitiation by his blood? Well, to pro propitiate somebody means to appease their wrath, to placate them. To, um, to some, this is an embarrassing notion, because it supposes that God is angry. And that's a very uncool thought today in today's culture and inside and outside of Christendom for that matter. But and some, have, some have translated it sacrifice of atonement. And while that's good, some of the others have actually said mercy seat, referring to the lid that was on the Ark of the Covenant on which the blood was poured uh, on the Day of Atonement once a year. And um, some of others have, have described it as expiation, which is a covering of our sins. So you might picture all your sins on that mercy seat and the blood being poured on it that covers it. And all those are descriptive terms. Are you know, They're good. They're helpful. They're kind of hints. But um, propitiation in its, in its full meaning of the word uh, means to appease the anger of an offended person. John Murray in his book Redemption Accomplished and Applied says it this way. Uh, propitiation presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God. And the purpose of propitiation is the removal of this displeasure. Very simply stated, the doctrine of propitiation means that Christ propitiated the wrath of God and rendered God propitious to his people. All of the wrath of God has been removed because it's been satisfied by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. He satisfied God's requirement. He appeased the wrath of God, God's furious wrath. 
And Good Friday for the Christian is the Day of Atonement. And Jesus Christ is the world's propitiatory sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus suffered on our behalf, in our place, substituting, substituting himself for the, for the suffering that we should have undergone. So it's called substitutionary atonement. To be received by faith. He says at the end, again, justification by faith is sola fide, by faith alone. And finally, the purpose of God's righteousness is the glory of God. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show that his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so the purpose was to show God's righteousness because God had allowed a lot of people to sin and hadn't punished them. Just go through the list. Abraham, you know, liar. Isaac, liar. Jacob, wheezy little manipulator. Um, David, adulterer, murderer. Moses, murderer. All these guys get their name in the Bible because he just kind of passed over their sins. So the charge could be brought against God. You're not just. If you were a just God, you would have punished uh, all those men, all those Old Testament saints, for they all had sin. And, and um, now, remember that their revelation of God was much less than ours in some ways. Abraham, Abraham saw our day and rejoiced in it, Jesus said. Um, so what, what David and Abraham know, knew, we don't know exactly. They did see something of the grace of God coming in Christ Jesus and that all of the, all of the sacrifices they were, they were making under the law of Moses, all of those sacrifices uh, were legitimate. But they all, none of them had the efficacy in and of themselves to save anyone. The blood of bulls and goats, Romans says, won't do the job. But they were all pointing to the blood that would be shed by the Lamb of God. That is what caused those guys to be forgiven. He passed over because they're in faith, but in order for him to be just and not unrighteous, all of their sin was placed on Jesus Christ as well, and he died in their place as well as ours. Therefore, God is not unjust. Not unjust. So, um, John Stott says in his, in his commentary in Romans, says, for God to have forgiven their sin lightly would, to have, would, would have been to have compromised with the, the lie that moral evil does not matter. And so to have violated his own truth and mocked men with empty, lying reassurance, which at their most human, they must have recognized as a squalid falsehood, which it would have been. Because somebody had to pay the price. Someone had to pay the price for their sin, or God would have been unjust. But God justified them by the blood of Jesus. That makes him both just, and that he punished their sin, and the justifier that he could release us and all those Old Testament saints as being righteous. He is just, and he punished it, and he's the justifier that he forgives us in Christ Jesus. That's good news, right? Hallelujah. Yes. Okay. Now, I want to just I'll stop here. Oh, I've gone a long time. Let me just end and uh, with telling just a little bit of a story with a purpose. Um, in 1986 and 1987, I was living in Mansfield, Ohio, <clears throat> and uh, or in that area, part of that time in Mansfield, and there was a there was a prison there, and I went um, usually once a month for a couple of years to teach a Bible study in the prison. 
And um, uh, it was not a cheery place. As a matter of fact, they filmed a big movie there later on called The Shawshank Redemption. So I used to walk in that place, the clanging behind you of the doors, walk down that catwalk and those to, to get to a room for a Bible study. It was a creepy feeling. And I was just visiting. You know, I can imagine if you had to be there, what that was like. Now, I want you to put yourself there, though, mentally. And say, you're in prison. You're not just in prison. You're not just doing possession charges. You're a, you committed a capital offense. And you are awaiting execution. You're awaiting execution. And so one day, the appointed day for your execution, there comes a knock on the cell door, and you go, and the guard opens the cell door, pulls it back, and says, someone has volunteered to die in your place. You can go home. Would that... That'd be a happy ending, right? Now, a human illustration like that doesn't match the majesty of the cross. But the point is this. We were on death's row before God. And Jesus voluntarily laid down his life, was suffered immense pain and sorrow, and for the first time in the existence he was separated from the Father and the Son. He suffered alone that we might never suffer alone. He suffered alone. It was the price to set us free from the judgment of God that had fallen on us. And for us, it is for those who have put their trust in Jesus. For those you are, you can go free. You can go free. My appeal to you today, if you're here, and you have never really entrusted yourself to Christ, let this be the day you do so. For those who put their trust in Jesus, the outcome couldn't be better. The future couldn't be brighter. There couldn't be greater hope than what we have. There couldn't be greater peace that we face all of life and even death with joy because he is with us. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. If you're here today, my appeal to you is don't take the wide road that leads to destruction. Take the narrow road. It's narrow because there's not that many people on it. Many are called, few are chosen. Most won't, but you will. You will. If you walk that path, that road through that gate and lead that life of faith where you're justified by faith alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Can I have the worship team come up? Heavenly Father, Oh, as we read this paragraph, such beauty, such awesomeness, both judgment and mercy described, such justice and righteousness exposed, all for us to see and behold. Great are the works of the Lord and studied by all those who delight in them. Lord, we look to that and we look to this paragraph and just rejoice that Jesus propitiated the Father's wrath 
on our behalf. And that now the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit look upon us with favor and acceptance, with love and blessing, and eternal life is ours by merely trusting and entrusting ourselves to you. May it be, Lord, that those of us today who know this truth will just rejoice all over again. And for those who haven't entrusted themselves, I pray that they would today. In Jesus' name. Can I say, if you're a person and today you decided to entrust yourself to God, we have a prayer team that's going to be over here. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. And it would be a good time for you to tell somebody. Maybe you, maybe you can tell the person you're with, brought to you or whatever. That I, I'm, I trust Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. If you believe that, you're set free. You're liberated. You have eternal life to look forward to.